Go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. You can also keep your finger on 1 Timothy chapter 4. We have been in uh, the pastoral letters now for several months, uh, and we've got a few more sermons before we take a break in June and spend some time in the Psalms. The question this morning for us is how they get that way? How did they get that way? Have you ever wondered how bad people become bad? You know, the, the mass murderers, the suicide bombers, the Hitlers of the world. You ever wondered that? You ever wondered how bullies become bullies? Maybe how liars become liars? Have you ever wondered how people who intentionally deceive others get to that point in their life to where they are regularly intentionally deceiving others? The Apostle Paul describes some people like this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. He says, Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. Not a good description of people, is it? Or at least this group that he's talking to. We know that Paul is talking about the false teachers that he has been wanting Timothy to address. Corrupt, divisive, slanderers. How do people get there? I mean, is it their upbringing? Do mom and dad sit them down one day and say, okay, son, we're going to teach you how to severely hurt people. We're going to teach you how to wreck lives. Or do these people just end up hanging out with the wrong people in junior high? Miss Ginny, you didn't hang out with the wrong people in junior high. That's good. Do these people have mommy issues, daddy issues, like daddy was never around when they were a kid? Or if daddy was around, he wasn't present. Were these people brainwashed? How do they get there? Perhaps it's more than what our rational minds want to acknowledge. Perhaps it's a spiritual battle. The Apostle Paul seems to address this in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. Now, the NIV reads the end of verse 2 even better. It says, their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Their consciences have been branded. I played football for Carroll College uh, back in the 90s, and that was before all the athletes where it was cool to have tattoos covering your arms. So I was... I, 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 was, I was surprised, and I'll never forget the first time I saw one of my fellow defensive backs with, without his shirt on. He didn't have a tattoo, but he had a huge number three scar. And I'm not talking about just one that was smooth. I'm talking about one where it was evident that somebody had taken a makeshift iron and rested it on his shoulder until he was seared for life. Yeah, ow. I asked him about it one day. He said something about drinking a party and really liking his high school jersey number. 
seared for life. Cowboys do this too. We know this. They do this with their cattle. They brand them to show ownership, to claim them, to say, this is my cow. So what is Paul saying in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2? He's saying that there are people whom the devil, whom deceptive spirits, whom demons have claimed as theirs. Paul describes them as liars whose consciences have been seared. I don't think any of us would argue with the statement that God is constantly pursuing people, right? He's constantly pursuing people. What's scary is that in this text, it seems to be saying that Satan is also constantly pursuing people. That's scary. And when they get caught in his snare, they claim them. They brand their consciences. Now, as I mentioned above, the the people being talked about in 1 Timothy 4 and 6 are the false teachers that Paul has been telling Timothy to stop their teaching. Were they taught to teach this way by their parents? Did they hang out with the wrong crowds in synagogue school? Did the rabbi do mind control on them? Doubtful. Paul seems to think it was a spiritual battle, a battle going on for their souls. And Paul says, don't listen to them. Listen to Timothy. He says this in chapter 6, the second half of verse 2 and 3. He says, teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Paul says, don't listen to the people who teach corruption, who teach lies, who teach jealousy and slander. Teach, listen to the people who teach wholesome things, who teach things that promote a godly life. Listen to the people who remind you, who point you to good. Be pointed to good, Paul says. Back in chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. For we know it is made acceptable by the word of God and prayer. Everything God created is good. So we point to the good. Now, why would Paul emphasize this? He's emphasizing this because he's addressing the Gnostic heresy. We've talked about this several times. Gnostics thought that all things material, all things matter, were evil. So anything that the body may desire, anything that we may crave, was bad according to them. So this was a group of people, which every generation has, that was trying to be stricter than God. It's a group of people trying to be stricter than God in an effort to be saved. Now what were they saying needed to be done to earn this salvation? Well, we see this at the beginning of verse 3 in chapter 4. Paul says, They will say it is wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods. Wrong to be married. Wrong to eat certain things. And if you don't do these, you're going to get extra knowledge that will give you that additional things you need for salvation. Now, apparently, this type of teaching really caught on. There's a collection of writings called uh, the Apostolic Canons. It's an ancient ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical decree that talks about the government and discipline in the early church. It addresses these don't eat, don't marry uh, teachings. So apostolic canon number 51, if any overseer, priest, or deacon, or anyone on the priestly list 
abstains from marriage and flesh and wine, not on the grounds of asceticism, that is, for the sake of discipline, but through abhorrence of them as evil in themselves, forgetting that all things are good and that God made male and female, but blaspheming and slandering the workmanship of God, either let him amend or be deposed and cast out of the church. Likewise, also a layman. Now, this was written back in A.D. 200, 300, so slightly different language than we use. But essentially, Paul is saying, if you don't eat and you don't marry because you think it's going to make you holy, kick them out of the church. Pretty straightforward. Paul's response to these false teachings was to point people back to good, and especially the good of the original creation stories. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it. Remember the original story? What did God say? What did God see when he was done creating? Very good. Genesis 1, verse 31. Then God looked over everything that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. Now, didn't God also say it is not good for man to be alone? That's why he created woman. Woman was good. Fast forward a couple, uh, couple of births later, you see God talking to Noah. The flood happened. Noah and his wife and his sons were there. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Sounds like a marital job description. Yes? Does not sound like God saying don't get married, does it? Now, besides pointing to the goodness of things, the Apostle Paul doesn't even seem to care about addressing this marriage issue anymore in this chapter. I mean, if anything, he would say, look at what I just wrote in chapter 3, where he says, uh, deacons, elders, be married to only one spouse. He's, he doesn't say, don't be married. He says, be faithful to your spouse. Now, Paul does address the food limitations. And here's what he has to say about those false teachings. This still is in chapter 4, verse 3. They'll say it's wrong to be married. They'll say it's wrong to eat certain foods. But God created those foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Paul wasn't saying anything new here. Jesus had previously and very specifically addressed this issue. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 to 19. You can just listen to this. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. He said, all of you listen and try to understand it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus and his disciples went into the house to get away from the crowd, and the disciples said, what did you mean by that? Jesus says, don't you understand? Can't you see that the food you put into your mouth cannot defile you? Food does not go into your heart, but only passes through your stomach and then goes into the sewer. He was being quite frank. By saying this, Jesus declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. Here's what God said in the earliest of the Jewish stories concerning food. Genesis chapter 9, he had just told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply. And he says, all the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. Doesn't sound like God saying don't eat, does it? What we're seeing here in the first part of uh, 1 Timothy 4 are two of the false teachings that Paul is saying, Timothy, you got to stop. 
He wants those things addressed because these bad people are teaching bad things. Paul says, God gave you food, eat it. Be thankful for it. It's good. God gave you marriage. Be thankful. Participate in it. It's good. Now, in chapter 6, Paul spends a little bit more time dissecting another false teaching that was going on in the church that Timothy led in Ephesus. This false teaching, or false ideal, dealt with money. Because apparently, 2,000 years ago, they were still dealing with the thought that money could buy happiness, that money could be the answer. So he says in chapter 6, the second actually verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5, these people always cause trouble, their minds are corrupt, and they've turned their backs on truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Back in the fall, I taught on Titus, and one of the things I talked about was how the false teachers would go into people's homes and teach them false things and confuse many of them. And they'd do that so that the, the people's homes who they went into would pay them, and they'd get rich. Paul seems to be maybe alluding to that again. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Now, before you start thinking, I'm going to say money is bad, I want to, I want to point us right back to what I said earlier when Paul points us to good. Remember the good. Paul's not telling us that money is bad. He's telling us that when it becomes an idol, when we long for it, when we desire it above all else, thinking that money will solve all our problems, that's when it gets bad. Chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation fall into temptation, and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. It's that longing for money. And Jesus actually told a parable about this in Luke chapter 12. I'm sure you've heard this parable. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide, to decide such things as this? Then he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. He says, A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. The man said to himself, What should I do? I don't have enough room for all my crops. I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns, enough to store all my wheat and my other goods. And then I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, Jesus says, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. He said, life is not measured by how much you own. And then in verse 34, he says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. There was a time Jesus told a rich man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. But that is not the hard and fast rule. Here we see Jesus addressing a heart condition. He's saying, look, you got to look at your desires. As Paul describes it, the love of money. It's the root of all evil. Several times in these pastoral letters, we've seen Paul tell Timothy, teach this. And anytime you hear that, your ears should perk up. We're hearing it again in chapter 6, you know, verse 2. 
teach this, Timothy. And then verse 17, 18, and 19. Teach this. Teach those who are rich in the world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they'll be storing up their treasures as a good foundation for the future that they may experience true life. Money's not bad unless you put your trust in cash instead of God. That's verse 17. Now, use your money for the good that we keep getting pointed back to. That's verse 18. Do this and experience true life. That's verse 19. And this true life is found in Christ Jesus. That life is good. Last week, our small group served our friends without homes down, uh, downtown um, on the ground ministry, also formerly called Inner City Christian Fellowship. And we had a couple who hadn't served there before. Uh, when they came into the car afterwards, one of them said, that was so fulfilling. So fulfilling. That's experiencing true life. That life can be found in Christ, a life that ends up being lived in godliness, and that can bring riches beyond anything we could ever imagine. Paul mentions this, verse 6 of chapter 6. Yet true godliness with contentment itself is great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we can come into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. True godliness comes with contentment, and contentment can only happen when your heart is set on Christ, not on gaining riches. So money is the answer is another one of the false teachings that Paul is addressing, just like don't marry and don't eat. I began by asking us the question, how do bad people get bad? And we saw how Paul described some of them. Divisive, slanderous, suspicious, jealous, evil, liars. And we saw how in a very real way, they became that way due to the spiritual battle, battle that was going on. Now, what if we ask the other side of that question? How do good people become good? Is it their upbringing? Is it the crowds that they hang out with? Is it another form of mind control, only this time good form? Or could it be Jesus claiming their hearts, branding their hearts? Could it be that when they're living the true lives mentioned at the end of chapter 6, verse 19, they are simply living out of a response to the Christ in them? Could it be that when they're living good lives, they're simply living the true lives out of the Christ in them? I think so. And I think we can be taught to live that way with the help of the Holy Spirit. I think we have three simple things in our text that we can do. They won't be simple to do, but three simple things we can point out in our text that if we do them, if we implement them in our lives, then people may look at us and say, how'd they get there? They're good people. Now, these are things that we already know. So it's just reminders for us this morning. The first is this. We need to live thankful. Live thankful. Chapter 4, verse 4, since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. 
Paul told the church in Thessalonica something very similar in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Be thankful in all circumstances. So be thankful. Second, we should live generous. Chapter 6, verse 18. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being willing to share with others. God has given us so much. I don't care where you fall on the American salary scale. We're rich, okay? Aaron and Kathy Hall. Many of you know them. We don't see Aaron too often. We see Kathy a little bit more regularly. They don't have much money. But Aaron works with trees. He's an arborist. And he's come several times, and he's trimmed our bushes at the church. In fact, the whole, fa- the whole family comes. They come, they trim, they sweep, they pick it up, and they leave. That is a tithe from them. That is worth more than any dollars or cents they could put in our plate. They're living generous. We're called to do that. Live thankful, live generous. Finally, we should live content. Paul said this in chapter 6, verse 6, and chapter 6, verse 8. Jesus also said it in the parable we saw in Luke. Living content, it's only possible when our hearts are intertwined in relationship with God, right? He says, Jesus did in chapter 12 of Luke, a person's a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. When you pursue that relationship with Jesus first, the things of the world that grab our hearts, that demand our souls, they soon fade in the background. I've got a friend who drives a 20-plus-year-old car. He could afford a new one. He doesn't buy one. I've asked him, why? It works. I'm content. As simple as that. The guy loves Jesus. Live thankful. Live generous. Live content. I think if we did that, we'd have people asking, how'd they get that way? And if they asked us that, we'd have an opportunity to share Jesus with them, which ultimately we want. Amen? Amen. Live thankful, live generous, live content. What will people say about you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for another day in, uh, in the pastoral letters. Thank you that the Apostle Paul cared enough for Timothy in the church that he was leading. Thank you that he cared enough to write him a letter and instruct him in the ways of the Lord. Thank you there were times he said, teach this, Timothy. Make sure people listen to it. And God, thank you for the times where it's simple. Thank you for the times where we can grab onto it and say, yeah, I can go to bed at the end of the day and I can, I can know whether or not I've been thankful. I've been generous and I've been content. God, ultimately, we know none of us is good. Your scripture tells us this. But through Christ, we are made good. So I pray that through Christ, through the Spirit, through you, Father, you would enable us. You would push us. You would encourage us to live these ways, thankful, generous, and content. And as we do that, God, may others see. May they ask us, hey, how'd you get that way? And may you give us the courage to share Jesus. We'll give you praise and honor when that takes place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.